0: Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams.
1: Hi, this is Tim Williams. I'm your host with the Grimshaw Cities Podcast Series. My guest today is Professor Peter Newman, who is Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University in Perth, Australia, but will be known across the world as an expert in terms of urban design, transport planning, and climate mitigation strategies. Indeed I think he's one of the world's leading thinkers about how you bring these three things together. He's written 20 books, over 350 papers. He wrote the uh, UN's IPCC report on transport uh, and so is a really important thinker of international standing. I'm delighted to say he's a friend of mine and I'm even more delighted to say he's here today to speak with us about what he knows about better than anybody else and so have a listen to this. It's really interesting and useful. Enjoy. So I'm delighted I've got uh, Peter uh, Newman here today, who, in addition to being a really rather distinguished academic, who's also changed reality out there, in my view, so that's an important uh, addition, is also a good bloke. And I uh, I, I don't always uh, think that, but I do think that. And we're going to talk about all this. Now, when I do these conversations, Peter, I, I start off with what I call their kind of greatest hits. And I discovered in my research with you, and I thought I knew you, but you've been in this uh, bailiwick of cities, transport, sustainability, and now going forward, net zero, from early days. And and I know that you formed some of the uh, uh, intellectual thinking about these things because of your early work, starting, I think, with your first volume in 89 with, uh, you know, Newman and Kenworthy. So I want to talk about um, your view on on uh, how you got into it in the early days, but also where we will get to in this conversation, I think, is also about the future of cities, because you and I are both passionate about that. And there are, you know, some of the paradigms that we've all been thinking about and talking about are in great flux at this point in time. COVID has happened, it's changed a lot of the ways that cities work. But I think you and I both agree, we need to, in a sense, rescue the phenomenon of, of why cities, uh, even if we have to recast and rethink. Um Well, I'm sure we'll get to that. But let's go back to the beginning. At the end of the 80s, you were amongst the first to write about these matters.
0: How did you get into it? Yeah, I've got to get back to the 70s to tell you about that. Look, I, I, I think I've been totally fascinated by cities since 1972-3 when I went to study in Holland. Now, the reason I went was because I needed to create a career, not out of my PhD in chemistry, but in environmental science because that was the growing new thing. And the only place in the world you could study that was in Holland. So I found myself in Delft and totally transformed my whole persona because I kept running into my friends in the street which was not something I'd ever experienced. If you want to meet your friends in Perth and other cities I'd grown up in in, in Australia, you rang them up and you kind of drove to some place. And you know it was all kind of very car-based and I thought that was normal. And then I discovered <laughs> European cities with their walkability and I loved it. Uh, so we, uh, after that year in Holland, um, w- we went to California where I was at Stanford working with Paul Ehrlich and the first oil crisis hit. And what I realized then was that Californian cities, American cities in general, were not going to cope in the future um, with this whole new world emerging that was threatening their car-based culture. Um, So I began to study cities and to collect data on cities Jeff Kenworthy came along as I started up at Murdoch um, uh, with this career of trying to see and understand cities um, and helped me get data. He was extraordinarily good at that, and we had to go individually to cities around the world. We collected data on 32 cities on the same basis, and you had to go and ask in different offices. There was no no central place Um, and get all that data, put it all together, and we came up, and after 10 years of work, with cities and automobile dependence, a term we had created and was based on data for the first time, we could show the differences between cities, why some of them collapsed like the American cities did when oil became scarce and the Dutch cities just went on as normal because they were just walking and cycling.
1: See, that's so fascinating I also think I hadn't realized by there that you were also an early adopter of this of benchmarking of cities kind of stuff because that has obviously become much more evident and uh, and there's all sorts of promiscuous kind of examples of it now but but you know to actually go and compare city by city by through data was a, I think a relatively unusual at the time.
0: Yes, it was unusual. Uh, The book has been called uh, one of the most significant books in the history of urban planning because it did compare cities on a real basis. We were greatly hated in America because it showed how bad they were uh, and the the enormous problems that they faced. But Australian cities were about half of their consumption of fuel per capita. and the European cities, half of that, and the Asian cities, half of that. So it was massive differences in cities, despite the fact that was similar in economic uh, abilities. Uh, they're, 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 um, it wasn't due to how much money you had. It was due to the form and nature of the cities that had been created. And we made that very clear.
1: It's, it's, you know, we would now say, oh, you know, it's obvious that land use and transport integration is a good thing. You know, we would, we would, but I don't think we kind of grasp what the fundamentals were that were like leading to that proposition. Although you and I would both agree, I think that you're out, you're every, you're everyday person, you know, your next door neighbor has grasped for millennia that uh, places are better that there was a a kind of a a nice mix of density and transport modes and amenity. You know, uh, I think that, uh, you know what I mean, the the non-scientific amongst us grasped this quite well. But you put some science into it, I think, is... uh, is... Yeah,
0: and and the the strange thing was the transport planners and the town planners didn't understand it, because they got stuck on a modernist idea that somehow or other you had to separate the functions and and accommodate the car and and neither of those were working but <laughs> well,
1: before we go into into what your central propositions were then and how they've evolved right which is what i want to do next i uh, i am very interested generally in the way that ideologies can can capture intellectual elites you know and the uh, the and the, that they're not as evidence-based as we sometimes think because they may just be looking in the wrong direction or they just are gripped by an idea and i think that modernist you know the Euclidean separation of uses and the modernist city were two very powerful ideas. They're not—they're not kind of intrinsically unreasonable in—in—in—in in, in, in one sense. I mean, the, the the separation of uses was partly because industry was so smelly and dirty back in the day, and you kind of kind of got that, that. But the but the the idea that the the car itself could properly reshape cities in a civilized way without having adverse consequences. Now that is a big proposition and you were there i think really early on thinking through uh, how do good cities get created because i think i'll stop at this one because i could go on about this but the, the i do like also i think intrinsic to your work is is not so much what is uh, what makes it a great transport mode it's it's what makes a great city it's rather like the the the, the conversation at the moment around uh, you know evs and avs is like how do we make the car better no it's how do we make the city better and I, uh, anyway, so that's, that's my view. So what were your central findings, Peter, back in the day and how were they evolved?
0: Well, what happened was that uh, we thought it was just common sense and because we hadn't been trained in planning. We were not in that design profession. We had been p- planned to collect data and try to understand why cities were different. And we came up with all these things that uh, have, have really stuck, but they they weren't normally accepted at the time because they didn't fit the ideology. But uh, I got elected to the Fremantle Council in the late 70s um, uh, because I, I was in very involved in the local community as I bought a house for $8,000 that had been abandoned for nearly two years and the whole city was falling apart. And The Fremantle Society had a new idea, which was that the city centre could be revived based around an economy of restoring the place and making it walkable and exciting and creative and all of those sort of ideas. And what I did was learn about town planning from the town planning committee by seeing how all the the regulations were actually preventing that from happening. They were wanting to knock the city down. They were wanting to put freeways through the middle of it. They were wanting parking everywhere. They were not enabling the mixed-use creative city to emerge. And we won. We basically threw the town planning scheme away and said, we want to accept any urban development from developers who can see that ideal of creating a city based around its heritage and the place and creativity that was possible. And that happened. Fortunately, the America's Cup came and threw a lot of money at us, but every development that fitted around that was part of that ideology. We'd won that. We got the numbers on the council. So I learnt the politics of planning on the On the job, if you like, and then became part of the town planning systems, if you like, across Perth. And then, as as we became more famous, and the Newman and Kenworthy hypothesis started to bite, we got asked to go to cities around the world and talk to them about it.
1: Now, before now, I've learned a lot in that one around your activism, which is fed into your intellectual work and vice versa, which I think is really important uh but I also uh, wanted to ask you what for, for those people who don't know what is the Newman Kenworthy fundamental hypothesis so what did you start with
0: well it essentially says that cities can be easily um, converted into three kinds of cities the walking city which has existed since for 8 thousand years and essentially it grew outward uh in in a a distance of half an hour's walk uh, and walk there and walk back. So a one hour travel time budget. And we discovered that others uh, and also non-planners who collected data on cities um, had come up with this idea of a travel time budget as well. And you could see that those cities didn't grow any further. They went up and they were very mixed Uh, during that whole era. Then the trams and trains era came uh, and spread cities out, but still in a a relatively strong uh, emphasis on the density around uh, centres, but there were more centres, not just the main city centre, that could be developed around the station precincts. Um, But the cities densities dropped from around 100 people per hectare to around somewhere between uh, 20 and 100. And and then the car era started from the 1930s, 40s on, and we got cities spreading in all directions. Uh, and you could, within half an hour, uh, get a, a good deal further. So the cities were uh, built then around the car. So we've been having these three cities, if you like, and in many ways, uh, the revival of the transit city and the revival of the walking city centres um, has been an ongoing issue of uh, real conflict. Um, and in your experience and my experience, the uh, uh, the latest knowledge economies that came out of the 1980s collapse uh, of the dot com Um, by the way each of those eras the the growth of the transit era and the car era they came out of new technologies and came out of depressions the 1930s depression gave rise to the car-based era the 1890s depression gave rise to the tram and train one so coming out of the dot com we had the knowledge economy um, and the importance of that and where was it best. A knowledge economy required face-to-face meetings. Yeah. So the baby boomers and the millennials all got together in city centres and uh, we had this revival of the city centre, which we've been through and it was a very important phase in the rediscovery of the walking city and young girls' ideas and so on. All came true and we we created place activated place in order to build the economy. Um, And that in many ways died during COVID. And we're now restructuring to say, well, what is next? And we've got a new economy emerging from a new uh, post-depression, COVID-related depression, if you like. And we're trying to recreate a new kind of city
1: well let's before we go to that let's go back one step because i think there's a really important series of propositions in all that you know um which i agree with most of what you have is so there's design and then there's economic function as it as it were, right and, and the two interact they, they can be on different timelines but they sort of they, they they come together in certain ways so that the car era what was strongly associated actually or, or could be coincidentally in terms of timing, but you have the decline of the older industrial city and you have the movement of some of these, partly because of this Euclidean planning, actually, you know, uh, uh, to out, out of the city. So some of the industry leaves the inner city and goes to the towards the edge. That comes at the same time as the car enable that kind of thing to happen. So they f- kind of feed off each other, leading to a hollowing out of the traditional inner city, which then gets re-claimed uh, by a different uh, cohort but also by different economic activity called knowledge work um this is where i sort of slightly disagree with richard florida you see the uh, where richard, richard I, I, I esteem and i like you know i mean these are good books right but the, the the creative class is too narrow a way of looking at what actually happened which is the repossession of the inner city by what, what we would now think of as the professional managerial uh, class involving you know a, a broad knowledge-based kind of workforce rather than just a creative uh, workforce and i think he also slightly underplays um the, the kind of the in in england we were very clear that some of these areas initially were occupied by, by gay people it was kind of a the gay thing because they didn't need large uh, suburban homes for families and all this kind of stuff so you, you actually have an interesting you know all sorts of things come together whatever they by. So the eighties, so the nineteen nineties is the recovery period of the and uh, of these abandoned inner, inner cities. And he stayed in Melbourne, um, where Melbourne, not lots of people were living in inner Melbourne by the beginning of the nineties. And although I'm a great fan of the laneways and all that kind of stuff, there was, I think, a prior order demand to live closer to the action because the emergence of knowledge economies that required, and this is the paradox of the of our discussion, they required agglomeration. You know the, the, the knowledge workers partly through labor force things this is really interesting part of what cities offer they offer thick labor markets so if you lose a job in one uh, type of knowledge economy you can get another job in another company but in the same sector in your city so this all kind of fed into the the, the slightly unexpected coming together of of digital technology stuff with knowledge workers and then just as at the point, this is my, this is my, you know, we discuss this now. But just at the point of greatness, where we were understanding the great virtues of the agglomerated city, and you know, and what it meant, and how we should try and make it even more sustainable. Covid comes along, and disrupts the model. Now, what do you think about? What do you think the 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 long term effects of Covid are being? What's what are you seeing? What's your analysis of the impact of this thing on on our city model?
0: Well, first of all, I think the importance of COVID was that it killed off the old fossil fuel economy, um, and that was necessary. So the climate-oriented technologies of solar batteries, electric vehicles, suddenly became very cost-effective. And the finance world was looking for what's the next investment after this, this revived yeah. economy. They're very clever at using depressions uh, and recessions yeah. as a way of planning the next few decades. And they decided it was a net zero economy. and We've now got $88 trillion around the world committed only to net zero projects. So the big companies, the fossil fuel companies and so on, they're going to die um, because they don't have the ability to attract that proper finance. And their model um, is, is, you know, very importantly, going to disappear. Um, So rebuilding the city uh, will now happen around these new technologies of solar batteries and electric vehicles. That's a absolute core to it. But smart technologies are part of that because they integrate them into different urban fabrics. So the old walking city can have different kind of combinations of solar batteries, electric mobility, um, the old inner city areas and the outer suburbs, uh, can and even the peri-urban villages, um, they can all have different kinds of combinations of that. So that's the way I'm writing at the moment. It's all about precincts. It's all about a kind of um, scale that makes those technologies work. And and they do work better in a local way. It's quite funny to see the big grids trying desperately to put these to work in massive solar farms and big wind farms and big transmission lines bringing in as though everything was still the same. But in fact... They're 10 times cheaper to do right where you are living and you can create a a small uh, precinct that has a microgrid and is enabled to work locally and you can feed in your e-mobility to it. The big question for me in this is how do you make the whole city work Uh, because that whole history of where you have face-to-face contact that is not just about the local, but about that yeah. city-wide function, and reclaiming a function for the city centre. Uh, it's not just going to be a whole series of precincts. They're going to have city centres, maybe several, um, yeah. because it can work. But the cities, if you like, that are dense and very functional, based around people wanting to control and manage and and bring creativity to their city, um, that will still require e-mobility, but it'll be e-transit systems and e-electric bikes that will bring people in from a little bit further out than the, the normal bikes and walking. Um, but that whole thing about e-mobility will also be a conflict over how much Public transport and how much localized cars and electric bikes and so on.
1: These are, I mean, by the way, I commend to those uh, listeners your your work, and I will I'll, I'll say a bit about um, a recent one. I've just been reading your Net Zero and the Maelstrom: Professional Practice for Net Zero in a Time of Turbulent Change. I, what I, by the way, anything that you've written, I find interesting, and I'm going to say specifically why I think uh, it's very much of the moment. It's because I think you connect. Three agendas actually. You connect city thinking with transport thinking with energy thinking, and I uh, and I and the, the result of that is is actually quite a uniquely useful bit of work, you know, because those three things really quite matter. And I uh, so I, I also like the fact that you you look at the different as you would call them fabrics of the city. So you've got your denser inner place, and you might have your middle place, and you might have your outer place. And you have thought through the various typologies and interactions between transport, energy production and living. Uh, And I I like all that before we get into that, because I want to talk about your thinking about net zero precincts. And I I, just to make the point to people, one of the reasons why you and I both, I think uh, are um, attached to the, to the reinvention of the CBD rather than the abandonment of the CBD is partly because if we are to achieve targets on energy over uh, the and and mitigation of climate you know, over the next decades, you know, urban planning and the benefits of agglomeration will need to be rediscovered uh, again. We can't just walk away thinking the decentralised city uh, gives us everything we want in terms of uh, energy efficiency. It doesn't. And I is that your view as well, brother?
0: Absolutely. And uh, I think it's a very very important uh, the the CRC. RACE, Reliable, Affordable, Clean Energy, is the biggest CRC in Australian history. Uh, I'm part of that. And they've got a new project called Net Zero Precincts. And it it is about different kinds of precincts, some of them dense and new, some of them in industrial clusters, some of them in rural um, eco-villages like Witchcliffe and Margaret River. We, we're looking at all of these and seeing how the different fabrics work. And that's a really critical thing to come up with for the whole world, because in many ways Australia is ahead of in this okay. economic change, uh, because we've got so much solar, and because we've taken off with ordinary households buying solar and finding they could do lots of local things with it, and the electric vehicles now fitting in, and electric bikes and so on. So we've got we've got the the, the 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 bones of the next economy emerging and we can help the world understand how this is this transition can occur and i I'd, I'd like to th- talk at some point about the corridors work that we're doing okay. well, as well
1: yeah i I, th- I think we'll we'll turn to that um i wanted to explain to people that CRC is a, a university collaboration um, research sort of initiative funded by
0: government with industry uh fine providing most of the money well matched by government it's an industry government and university collective it's very important uh in australian history now they've been very good at creating the future you are listening to the grimshaw podcast building the city
1: series uh i want to it's interesting that right? sometimes we don't always as, associate you you correctly point this out we don't always think of uh, urban planning um initiatives and innovations coming from australia but this coming together of city making and and growth with the energy issues and the transport issues makes it actually rather more important than than some of the traditional uh, sources of wisdom on these things like the the, the denser older cities of, of Europe. The, the, we're, we're a halfway house, as you said earlier on, I think, between these models and making us quite interesting.
0: Yeah, because the American model is stuck and they can't seem to get out of it. Um, and the Australian model was always t- dallying around somewhere between Europe and America. And we've now seen during this knowledge uh, phase that we've been through, that the european cities work really well uh, in certain places uh, and you have to rediscover place so the young the girl experience was really important for me because we brought him to australia and what he discovered was like a, a demonstration project of how to change a city because we were ready for that change and in a way europe just thought well that's common sense and they were doing it anyway. So we re, dis, rebuilt our city centres, Melbourne and Sydney especially, but even in Perth, quite dramatic changes occurred around place, placemaking, place activation, all of that. And he was the driver of how to do that and how to make it politically acceptable. And it all worked beautifully. He's written extraordinary stuff about it. We've written a book about him. So that kind of idea showed that Australian cities could show how to revive car bay cities with this new place activation. And we've got to take that concept into the next kind of round of cities because I don't imagine I can't imagine a future where city centers don't play a major place. And that will need to be now built around these new technologies, new kinds of buildings, new kinds of ways of interacting. But it, the, there's certainly a lot more digital communication going to happen, but it's never going to be enough. We have to have this face to face, face activation. Just on that moment, just on that for a moment, there's an economic requirement for this, but also
1: a sociability requirement. I, I've been alarmed by the by, the support for what I regard as nar- unhealthy narcissism about just the idea that sitting at home all day is somehow good for me. You know, I, I so I, I'm a bit concerned about that, but the economic thing is interesting. The MIT um, Sensible Lab or whatever it's called, they're, they're innovation, technical innovation people, did some research looking at uh, innovation encounters before COVID, during COVID and after COVID. And they, they just, they, it was a catastrophic loss of, you know, people talking to each other uh, as a fundamental moment in co-creating innovation you know so i i can't see how we think we can just recreate you know what cities enable us to do by bumping into each other you know and by and and in the and also the, the fact that you know uh the, the the kind of there's there's been an unequal access to walkable city uh in in australian cities you know as they've developed and you know we've got diabetes exploding in western sydney and it's not because they're especially lazy or because they're especially got on different diets. is because there's nothing to walk to. So mm. um, so I do think this whole idea that we can just vanish, space can vanish. I mean, it doesn't matter to us. Place, your point, right? In whatever scenario you and I are talking about and you are writing about in great depth and sophistication, place still matters. Um, and, you know, that I think we need to hold on to that.
0: Yeah, and it can matter out in Western Sydney too. Yes. And that's perhaps one of the great things that COVID has taught us, that the localised place okay. became to, to matter more during that time. And I, I've worked in the city of Liverpool, and they've got a beautiful place in their city centre. It's, it's historic, of course. There's a lot going on in Sydney, rediscovering place in the suburbs. And I think that's important for us to see into the future as well so it's there is an equality thing there is a human thing no, about- absolutely
1: and i agree completely that and i've written about this the the hub and spoke thing you know it's 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 really important to, you know there's a kind of retrofitting of suburbia moment ahead and i think it's quite hard to retrofit actually but i think that is the job of the future because i think we need to marry a reinvention of the cbd with a reassertion of more mixed-use suburbia if you like but uh, in a sense a less dispersed uh, more connected suburbia than we've seen. I
0: think is my yeah. My well, point. let me then explain my corridor. Okay. Uh, yeah. Let's go for it. That, that's what we've been doing with the Sustainable Built Environment National Research Centre across Australia. We've worked on this in Townsville, in Brisbane, in Sydney, uh, in Liverpool, actually in Sydney, uh, in Melbourne, in a number of places, and uh, mostly in Perth, uh, where the concept of the trackless tram appeared out of nowhere for us. We were always light rail fanatics, uh, trying to yeah. say light rail can enable urban regeneration to occur in precincts around stations. And we liked that idea. Um, but the trackless tram is a, a Chinese invention, it's electric and it uses new smart technology to help with its drive um, system. So the ride quality is very high, equivalent for me to a light rail. So that means you can go down a main road through suburbs and create centres along that corridor around the station precincts. The station precincts and the and the developments around them can all be net zero they can be the net zero buildings and and all of the solar battery e-mobility recharge sites and so on but they need to be joined so that you can go across the city and that crossing will take you to the main uh the the the, bit, the train lines that are electric anyway um and those kind of um, connections across the city will still be needed, because you're not going to have a university in every little uh, suburban precinct, you're not going to have a hospital, you're not going to have main shopping centres, and and you're not going to have knowledge economy uh, centres that are going to be creating and innovating the future. So all of those things need to be reached across the city as well as in your local area. And a crossing pro- uh, uh, technology to me is this trackless tram. Now we've been pushing this. The Chinese, I went and rode it in China. They 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 really are good, um, and they're going to give us two techno uh, two of these trackless trams to trial in the middle of this year. We're going to get them. They're coming to Perth. We've got an opportunity for the whole world to come and see them and ride them and and talk about them. We've got a lot of interest around the world. The the C forty and the Clinton um, Foundation group. There's now thousand cities in that they're talking about it. World Economic Forums talking about it. I spoke about it at Sharm El Sheikh for the COP twenty seven, and there was immediate interest. BlackRock, the financier, said this is the kind of next phase we're looking for. So you can fund and finance a net zero corridor with urban development integrated into this new technology of public transport. So it's not just a government project. It has to be a public-private partnership, the way trams were originally. They were all real estate exercises. And that opportunity of creating the next kind of city along corridors with these centres uh, is is the kind of thing that I think is going to emerge because I can see real interest for money from urban developers. I've talked to Hesperia and other developers, Lendlease and these kind of groups, and hopefully Grimshaw as well. This is the kind of this is the kind of thing that we need to build. And we can show this in Australian cities and show the world how to create a post COVID net zero city. And that's my great dream.
1: I think that's an extraordinary idea, and I, I agree with it. Because, and I think it's uh, you're the man to do it, uh, Peter. Because I think you've you've thought a lot about this. I I, I think people should. Um, I also like the fact that we are positioning Australian cities to be uh, pioneers of something around this kind of stuff. I think that's an interesting I- idea, and I also think I like very much. I want to talk about this the role of the private sector in in all this is quite it was quite interesting it's been a bit of a lesson i think the way in which the private sector uh, over the last 20 years particularly the last 10 probably uh, particularly the investment side of it has become very attached to or otherwise progressive uh, ideas and and certainly um esg investment you know is is driving major change uh, in the way that in what we build and how it's built um, and I think that going forward, uh, the two things that will matter, either for the public sector or the private sector, uh, the two outcomes that will matter will be social inv- and environmental impact. I think those two things will, will drive, are driving um, private sector investment. In fact, so much so that sometimes developers have been left behind by by what the private sector wants to invest in. Now, the investment community says we don't want any old crap. Actually. Um, we, you know, we we want things that actually help health and well-being outcomes. You know, make the city more livable um, and are more sustainable. And please don't come to us with your your backward-looking projects. And I, I it's funny, I had a conversation about a year ago with some people in the uh, in a state government near us uh, about uh, what I thought COP26 was coming out with, which essentially was an investment community that will. No longer want to invest in some of the prized projects that have been disfiguring some of our Australian cities for the last 20 years. You know, they won't want to do them again. And I'm not going to say West Connect, Peter, but I'm going to say to you that, you know, some of these things are no longer supportable. Yeah. They will not find an investor who will want to do them because of the environmental and reputational damage that they will do. So I think we're at a moment, so I'll, I'll stop at this point. We're at a moment where I, I kind of, progressive for want of a better word private sector investment community looking in the same direction as the rest of us um is an opportunity i I think the last thing is i mentioned to you this this before i think the covid has disrupted certainties and models and that therefore it's incumbent i think upon anybody with an idea actually the community private sector bits of government to actually sort of co-create the next because it's not clear to me that some of the old projects will be required. It's not clear to me that some of the things we we might have wanted to commission three years ago are going to be commissionable now. In which case, I think it's all of us need to join the party and, and come up with ideas that will actually take us forward. And you're intellectualising them. But also, as ever, and this is something I do want to turn to. You, you, are, you are looking, as I know you always would, to who might deliver this. And it, it, you don't look to the usual suspects. You're looking to innovative investors and, and and private sector partners but you're also this is the bit i want to go to next peter because i if it, the the subtitle and the subtext of your of, of the paper which i commend on net Zero and the maelstrom is professional practice right i want to talk a little bit about this because i think that this is where you have been really interesting for a long while right you've been sort of you've been you know some people don't get this um i once used to work for the prime minister's delivery unit in the uk and i argued delivery didn't mean the moment that the bottle of milk was put on the doorstep the delivery was started in the head right and it starts with with manuals and professional principles and it starts with guidelines and it's it's like processes the, the dullest thing people can can talk about but you know we started by saying that some of the professionals in planning had been misled by ideologies so it's a it's a proper emphasis you have, I think, on how do we change professional practice.
0: Yes, well, the manuals of modernism, as I call them, are certainly no longer relevant, and they still get taught. They still get professional development practice being taught in, and and you get your points, and you know you're rising up the ladder because you know how to do it, but it's all thrown away. The Maelstrom idea is that we have been coming down this river moving towards a climate related comp- uh, uh, huge conflict essentially that was going to happen and it it happened, it's now called Net zero and we can see the net zero river at the bottom of this whole exercise. but we've got to go over the waterfall to get down to it. And we're in that waterfall now. Um, and the interesting thing for me was to see on the front page of the uh, website of the Climate 100 Plus, which is the finance commun- community's website showing the 88 trillion and what it's being used for, um, That that is a waterfall. And the idea of going down that waterfall is that it's complete chaos, but it's very exciting. There's lots of risk and lots of opportunity emerging, and we've got to come through this. So we've got to throw away the manuals and and learn how to do it uh, whilst keeping the foundations of the river that we're in because we know we're going somewhere. We're going to be creating a whole new civilization around these cities and regions and technologies that are going to be carbon or carbon dioxide or climate resilient. Uh, they'll be free of all that so that that is the model that i've been working on and the reality is that in energy in water in waste in planning in engineering all of these things are thrown up into the air and we have to have demonstrations now of how to do it and learn from them and redo the manuals. Um, we cannot just keep sticking to the old world because it's dying. And that's pretty much the way civilization has recreated itself and the waves of innovation that have come along. There's a lot about innovation waves and transition theory and so on, how this uh, this change occurs. And it is always about partnerships. So how do you get private sector, as in money, working with common good as in government how do you get them to work with local communities where the creativity and place orientation is very clear the three elements have to be there and we've got to do that with demonstrations and the 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 one that's missing in urban planning and transport in particular but also in energy to a large degree is the private sector haven't been driving it as much as they should have uh private sector um he, it requires regulation but they hid behind the fact that there was no real regulation in the last 10 years so they just did nothing well that was never going to work they should have seen and created their own regulations in my view and and in a, in WA, we didn't we don't have Um, private sector involvement much in the energy system, but very heavily in transport. The transport system is Stalinist. It is all based around government money being provided for government projects, and the private sector kind of might build it, but their ideas and so on are are, are left to building the, the new suburbs that are created by this transport. And, you know, I think we've got to get over that and we've got to get private sector money back into this whole process, which is why the trackless tram means a lot, because it's cheaper than light. You don't need a lot of government money. You can actually afford to do it in partnership. You get government for common good, affordable social housing. All of that needs to be part of that future. But it is going to need private sector being taken seriously in urban development and particularly public transport.
1: See, I like all that, I also like, I actually specifically like the trackless tram and and I liked it before COVID, but I like it more now because the business model of of conventionally provided big expensive public transport has been wrecked by the the transport patterns we're seeing around COVID, but therefore a kind of cheaper technology will do the trick it seems to me and also do a new trick which is to connect the suburbs up you know more with each other as well so i think this is a hugely important part of the the creation of the new fabric to the new the next city and i think probably i would like to kind of end on this with a discussion about your vision of the future really let's have a an, let's have a, uto- a utopian and a dystopian uh, scenario from you about the. The future of, say, Australian cities. What, what's the what's the optimist and what's the pessimist scenario in you?
0: Well, let let me uh, use your word fundamentalist. There, there is a rise of fundamentalism that's occurring in all kinds of forms, and one of them is in the professions where you stick to what you have known in the past, and that has to be right, no matter what the world is showing you. Um, and that that is is alive and well in the professions. Certainly, those who want to create a grid in its own image, or or create the uh, the public transport system or the road system, uh, the most things to do with the city, are still stuck in those manuals. Um, if we keep going with that, um, the cities will die. Uh, They will not have that creative and human dimension that we know we've got to recreate and they won't be able to provide the solutions that are needed in the climate change world. I think we're over that already. There is so much happening and there's a lot of leadership by the the, the people who are writing about it. You know, the Ross Garnos and so on of this world, extraordinary in Australia. They have been leading us out of this... Waterfall into a different kind of future. And it's very positive and clear. And this is where we need to go. Saul Griffith, you know, they're, they're terrific. Um, so uh, let's hope that we can see a more optimistic future where our cities are rebuilt around zero uh, fossil fuels. We will not need them in any form of what we do. Uh, They will be based on sunshine, Uh, they will be based around technologies that are fitting how to use that sunshine locally and then join together and to enable the city to continue doing the kind of things it does well in bringing people together in places, both locally and in, in, in suburbs in sub-centres throughout the city and in a, a major city centre that continues the history of urbanism that is created there. And you'll never be able to quite recreate in a new setting. You need the history of how that worked and why it's important to just walk around and breathe it in and enjoy it because hundreds of years of history of human beings joining together to solve problems is expressed there and we need to continue that history into the future that is important and our places will need to be recreated around that human dimension out of that will come the economic dimension and out of that will come the climate resilient future that we will need so, look,
1: I think that's a brilliant way to end, and I, I, it fits very well with what I want to say about you. And I'll get, I'll get there by a little cul-de-sac. The, uh, the, the cul-de-sac is around the danger, I feel, in an overly narrow vision of environmentalism, which you don't have, which essentially says as long as we electrify cars, then that's okay, and I and I have a worry in my head that there's a portion of people who are with us in this conversation who peel away at this point, thinking that it all all we need to do is electrify cars, and it comes back to my point, which is we don't want a better car, we want a better city. And uh, you, I think, position everything you do, it, you know, in this it's technically informed. You're really up to speed with all the environmental issues. You have the objectives. Uh, in mind of a net zero future, but you situate it also always in place and in people and in trying to make sure that we maintain the virtues of what cities have always provided which is sociability and, and the kind of economic consequences and amenity consequences that come out of that so I, I'm going to stop at this point and say thank you for what I thought was a really exceptional conversation but also to say to to you and to those people you should find out more about Peter's work because I think from this conversation and you will find in his work That he's one of those rare people that is a necessary figure in this discussion about the future of our cities. You know, we know we know about Yang Gale, and I'm not just bullshitting here. We know about Yang Gale. Bullshit is a technical term of art in urbanism, by the way. uh, But the Peter's contribution is as necessary uh to understanding what we we will need to do next, that coming together of these traditions of transport of economic activity, of design, and of, uh, of energy, if you like. And I think that uh, he's a great guide uh, to the future of the next city. So uh, thank you, Peter. You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.